This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Yes, thanks for the privilege uh, to, uh, that I might come and share with you guys. Um, now, I've, I've noticed, you know, wherever I go, uh, and I've been, I studied here in Stellenbosch in 96, got my degree in 2000, um, and uh, became a pastor here in 2002, uh, went up to Franschhoek for about five years from 2005, um, came back to Stellenbosch for a year, and then in Somerset West, and now in Beginning 2015, we, my family and I moved up to Joburg to, um, to lead the congregations there. And I've noticed that the challenges that we face as humans are all the same. We all want freedom, um, but many times most of us struggle to find it. And we struggle to find it in different ways. We think we're going to find it in different ways, but it's ironic how so often the things that we think will lead to our freedom actually lead to our bondage. You know, just think about um, so many people who think, you know, if I get a right job, and, and this is like a big thing in Joburg, you know, that's why people come to Joburg. They come to make money and get good jobs. Um, and, and, you know, like, so they come to Joburg and they think, if I can just get the right job, you know, then I'll make a lot of money and I'll be free. And they end up, you know, working so hard that they end up in a kind of bondage, you know, of workerism. And um, they get paid the, um, they get paid the good salary, but it turns out to be little more than indentured servitude <laughs> and a form of slavery. Now, and then you get other guys who go to completely the opposite spectrum and think, you know, if I use drugs and stuff, you know, and just flout all traditions and all norms and all rules. If I can just get out of my parents' house, you know, and, and away from there, from their, you know, out from under my mother's watching eyes, you know, and, and away from their rules, you know, then I'll be free, you know, and I can use drugs and I can sleep around and do all that kind of stuff. And then they end up being addicted to those drugs and in, you know, as much, maybe even more bondage, you know, in, in the things that they sought their freedom in. And we, we all want freedom and we seek freedom in different ways. But it's ironic how often the things that we seek freedom in end up enslaving us. And um, last year when I was here, sort of in the middle of the year, I, I started preaching on the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And I actually want to continue and, and this morning and this evening finish um, on that parable. And um, I'm just going to read you that parable. Um, it says in, and I think it's up on the screen. Um, there we go. On... Uh, uh, Luke, Luke 15. I'm just going to st- start with the first two or three verses. It says, Now the tax, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And we see that there are two groups. And, and they represent sort of the two general ways of seeking freedom and the two general approaches to religion. There's the tax collectors and the sinners. They think freedom is found in running away from religion. And then you get the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they think that freedom is found in pursuing religion. And 
these two groups look at each other and they say, ugh, those other guys, you know, they're so in bondage, you know. Those, those tax collectors and sinners, they're so in bondage, you know. The Pharisees look at them and say, they're so in bondage. And the, and the tax collectors and the sinners look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and they say, these guys are so stuck up, they're so in bondage, you know, all those rules and regulations and stuff. And Jesus says to them, you're both right and you're both wrong. Because all of you are in bondage. If you, if you look at the story, I'm going to read the story now in a moment. But there are two characters, two main characters, the, the younger brother and the older brother, representing the younger brother representing the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older brother representing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they both end up in slavery. The younger brother runs away with his inheritance to a far-off country, and he ends up working as a slave in a pigsty. And the thing that he thought would make for his freedom ends up getting him in slavery and bondage. And the older brother, representing the Pharisees and stuff, he's in the father's house, but he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. See, he's a slave in the father's house. The one's far away in a far country, far away from the father's house, but he ends up in slavery there. The one is in the father's house, but he ends up in slavery there. And we have these misconceptions about how religion works and how salvation works. And I want to submit to you and just appeal to you this morning, whether you're a younger brother type that tends to run away from God and all these rules, or whether you're an older brother type that tends to want to you know, work hard and serve and earn your salvation, I want to appeal to you to be open that maybe some of the things that you thought about what salvation is like and how you can truly find freedom. Maybe some of the things that you thought were wrong are wrong. Be, just at least be open to that. Let's be humble and be open to that. And let's see what we can learn from this parable. So in verse 11 of Luke 15, Jesus goes, continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off to a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The, the old King James said in prodigal living, and that's where we get the typical name of the um, parable as the parable of the prodigal son. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. That's, it's a bit of a mild translation. It literally says he joined himself. Um, you might even interpret it as sold himself as a slave. Um, he, be, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he came... When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it, uh, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Father, we just thank you for your word and we pray, Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you are here and we pray, Lord, that you really come and touch our hearts and lead us into all truth and correct any wrong beliefs or misunderstandings that we have. And we pray, Lord, that you'll Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to your truth, to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I always like to remind people that uh, there's a difference between understanding, lack of understanding, and misunderstanding. See, when you understand something, you have a mental grasp of it. So you, you know, um, it makes sense to you. When you have a lack of understanding, when you don't understand something, you, you don't have a mental grasp, but you know you don't have a mental grasp. You know you don't understand it. You know, Not understanding something is a conscious thing. You, you sort of, um, when you get, come into contact with it, uh, you realize, okay, I don't understand it. But misunderstanding is when you think you understand it, but your understanding of it is incorrect. In other words, to the one who misunderstands, his misunderstanding is understanding. When you misunderstand something, you think you understand it, but you understand it incorrectly. So misunderstanding involves a degree of deception. And the problem is not so much our lack of understanding of the gospel, but our misunderstanding of it. And um, I just want to show you um, that this, how this parable reveals the true nature of our salvation by revealing the true nature of our sin, the true nature of our repentance, and the true nature of our Father. So what I basically want to um, show you is that um, even though we underestimate our sin and need for repentance, we underestimate our Father's love even more. Okay? Even though we underestimate our sin and need for repentance, we underestimate our Father's love even more. So let's go. The true nature of our sin. Um, we look at this parable and we look at 
Jesus actually, what he does here is he, he, in a sense, redefines sin in quite a surprising way. So we look at this parable, we look at the younger brother, and we clearly recognize that as sin. I mean, he comes to his father, and he says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And, I mean, in those days, as today, you only got your inheritance when your parents actually died. So basically what he's saying to his father is, Father, I wish you were dead, because I don't want you, I want your stuff. And I spoke about that last year, about how at the heart, effect, effectively, of what breaks up this family, both from the younger brother and the older brother's side, is idolatry. Making the father a means to an end, not an end in himself. And that's at the heart of all sin. But can you see that you look at, at this selfishness of the younger brother and how he wishes his father were dead? Because for him, salvation is getting away from the father, out from the father's house, away from the father's rule and, and, and the father's um, rules and regulations and his stifling, in his probably opinion, um, religiousness. So he wants to get away. He thinks that's his salvation. Um, and we look at that, that selfishness, that callousness of the younger brother, you know, I mean... Shucks, you know, even if you're the worst parent in the world, if you're a parent, you know, you make a lot of sacrifices for your kids, you know. You might not be a perfect parent, but you do a lot of things that you don't want to do uh, and sacrifice for your children. So even the worst parent in the world makes sacrifices for their kids. And this unthankful little brat, you know, says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff, and I just want to go and get out of here. Um, and he's not alone. We look at that and we see it's sin. And then he goes to a far-off country. Now, remember, he's a Jewish boy, a good Jewish boy. Far off country where they have pigs. It's clearly not Israel. They don't eat pigs in Israel. Pigs are unclean animals. If you invite your Jewish neighbor over for breakfast, don't serve him bacon and eggs. Not going to bless his Jewish heart. Uh, pigs are unclean animals. So we know this is, it goes to a far country with unclean people. Um, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he lives wild living with prostitutes and all kinds of stuff. Clearly sin, you know. You know, sleeping around with prostitutes. Um, you know, the older brother, he says, you know, when, when, when the younger brother returns, he says, when, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property on prostitutes comes back, you know, it, 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 you almost get the feeling, you know, and remember they, they're Jews, you know, you almost get the feeling, the fact that he wasted the money is worse than he did it, the fact that he did it with prostitutes, you know. Wasting money is like a big sin for Jews, you know. <laughs> when Jews know how to work with money, you know. <laughs> so... You know, he's, he's wasted the money and he's done it with prostitutes, wild living, you know, sleeping around. And he ends up in a pigsty. He has to go and basically, in a sense, sell himself off to, the, to a Gentile, you know, become a slave of a Gentile. Ends up in a pigsty, unclean animals, filthy animals. I mean, I don't know if you know pigs, you know, but they're not the cleanest animals. That's why when you prepare pig meat, you know, you have to brine it really well. You cannot, you know, you can eat beef you know, rare or medium to rare, but you can't eat pork medium to rare, you know. You've got to make sure it's dead, you know, because they, <laughs> they're unclean animals. They'll even eat their own feces, you know. They'll eat anything, including their own feces. So he ends up in this pigsty. Um, and we look at that younger brother, his selfishness, his blatant sinning, we say, yes, that's sin, you know. I can recognize that as sin. The selfish disobedience of the younger brother is sin. But so often, we don't look at the older brother and recognize that what he's doing is as much sin. 
And Jesus redefines sin as not only what the younger brother does, our typical stereotype of sin, but also what the older brother does. And that's the thing that the Pharisees didn't see. You see, the the older brother... um, Was his sin was less obvious. The thing that separated him from the father and the thing that caused him bondage was not so much the bad things that he did, because he says, I never disobeyed your laws. I never disobeyed your orders. He didn't do bad things. He was a good boy. But the things that got him in trouble, that separated him from the father, got him into bondage, wasn't the bad things that he did, but actually the good things that he did. Because the problem was he was doing the good things for the wrong reason. He was doing the right things for the wrong reason. And yet Jesus redefines sin not only as the bad things that you do, but as the good things that you do for the wrong reason. Not only as the wrong things that you do, but the right things that you do for the wrong reason. Let me me put it this way. I heard a story of an emperor, say emperor of China, and um, this uh, old gentleman, very old man, poor peasant, came to him and said, dear emperor, you know, I really love you and I I think you're an amazing ruler and you've taken such good care of us as a country and, and, um, you know, blessed us. And I don't have much, but the the most valuable thing I have is this horse, you know, it wasn't really a amazing horse who was a little bit old and so on, but, um, you know, I, I want to give this to you because I just love you so much and, 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 and I think you're such a good emperor. And he brought his horse and, and the emperor received it and, uh, and, and, and said thank you and, and said to his servants, please weigh the horse. And they weighed the horse and they said, please give this old man the weight of this horse in, in jewels and gold and silver. Like everyone was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden this poor peasant goes from being dirt poor to stinking rich, you know. And one of the officials in the in the Empress Court thought, Wow, that's amazing. If he gives that for this shabby old horse, imagine what he'll give for like a really good thoroughbred horse. So the next day he walks in with this beautiful thoroughbred horse, you know. He says, Dear Emperor, you know, you are such a great emperor, you know, may you never May, may you live forever, you know. Um, you take such good care of us, and, and I love you so much, and I want to show you my love by giving you this horse. And the emperor says, thank you, and he takes the horse. And the, the guy's sort of standing there and like, <clears throat> and the emperor says, oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you expect me to also give you jewels and gold and silver like I gave the peasant yesterday. Because you see, the emperor wasn't stupid, you know. He discerned what was going on. He said, you're not going to receive any. Because there's a difference between you and that peasant. You see, that peasant gave the horse to me. You gave the horse to yourself. See, if we serve God for the benefits that we can get, are we really serving God or ourselves? Are we really serving God or ourselves? You see... The older brother's selfish obedience is as much sin as the younger brother's selfish disobedience. Can you see how Jesus redefines sin? Not only as the wrong things that you do, but as the right things that you do for the wrong reason, with the wrong motive. The right things that you do for yourself. 
is as much sin as the wrong things that you do for yourself. So here's my question to you. Have you repented not only of the wrong things that you've done, but also of the right things that you've done? You see, that's the difference between a Christian and a Pharisee. Pharisees only repent of the wrong things that they do, but they still do the right things out of selfish motives. Christians, real Christians, repent of the wrong things that they do and of the right things that they do out of selfishness. The right things that they do in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn their salvation. They repent of their slaving for the Father. Have you repented of the right things that you've done? You see, many of us sit here in church and we're in grave danger of being Pharisees, of being older brothers. Because we repent only of the wrong things that we do and not of the right things that we do. You see, Tim Keller says it nicely. He says, um, the more... Um, how does he put it? The more we realize... The, the more we realize that our salvation doesn't depend on our behavior, the more radically our behavior will actually change. So this brings us the true nature of our sin. This brings us to uh, another thing, the true nature of our repentance. Um, Jesus also, he doesn't only um, redefine sin, but he also um, redefine, redefines the repentance. And the true nature of our repentance, let's just read um, Luke 15, verse 17 to 19, because the younger brother sort of rehearses his repentance while he's in the pigsty. He's not talking to the pigs, he's sort of talking to himself. And he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against uh, heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And we see three things here of how Jesus redefines repentance. Uh, we already saw that repentance, we should repent of not only the wrong things that we do, but also of the right things that we do for the wrong reason. But it, 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 this also shows us that our repentance is always towards God first. It's always inadequate and it's always a consequence. Okay? Our, our repentance is always towards God first. It's always inadequate and it's always a consequence. So the first thing we see here is, he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So our sin is always against heaven first. And Many people don't realize this, that every sin that you commit, no matter against who it is, is ultimately and primarily against God. Because you're breaking His law and you're sinning, even if you sin against other people, you're sinning against people that He created in His image to represent Him. That are His creation. So, David understood this. I mean, David sinned terribly. Uh, he Instead of going out to battle to lead his men in battle, he was wandering around on the, on the roof of the, of the castle. So he saw Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's uh, wife, bathing on, on, the, on a rooftop. So that was the place, you know, you had sort of single room houses in those days. So if you wanted privacy, you went on the roof, you know. 
And uh, so she, she went up there and bathed, but he was in the castle, you know, like at the vantage point, sort of the ancient equivalent of internet porn. So he was like checking her out and seeing, you know, this is a fine lady. And he wanted her and he called her to the castle and he, and he had sex with her, you know, committed adultery with her. And then she became pregnant. And so he got he tried to get Uriah, when he got back from the battle, he tried to get Uriah to sleep with her to sort of cover his tracks, but Uriah didn't. So to make a long story, story short, um, David organized for the troops to draw back, you know, when, you know, place Uriah in the heat of the battle and then draw back around him so that he got killed by the enemies. So he basically had Uriah assassinated. So he's committed adultery and murder. And he's lied and covered up his tracks. And... Um, then there's this beautiful scene where Nathan the prophet confronts him and, and, and shows him his sin and he repents. But in, and then he writes Psalm 51. If you want to um, learn more about repentance, go, and go home and read Psalm 51. But in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says this. He says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. And he understood this, that even though sin is against other people or may be against other people, it's always against heaven first. And this means, I mean, you've probably heard you know, people talking about a victimless crime or victimless sin. This means that there really is no such thing as victimless sin or victimless crimes. All sins are against God. So, you know, so often you, I hear people saying, no, uh, you know, uh, we, we live together. We're not married, but we live together and we sleep together. Um, but, but, I mean, we, we're two consenting adults, you know. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. You're still sinning against God. And even though you don't feel like it, you're actually sinning against one another. And it's not like sex is bad. Just by the way, God created sex. Okay, It wasn't the devil's idea. I get so, the, the impression so many Christian things, uh, Christians think that sex is dirty and, and bad and uh, that the devil invented it. No, the devil didn't. God created sex. Sex is good if you keep it in the right place. It's just like fire. Fire is also good if you keep it in the fireplace. But if you take it out of the fireplace and put it in, in your bed or in the roof of your house, then it's not so good. Fire can, can heat food and, and keep you warm and it can give you light. So it's, it's, it's a good thing. But if you put it in the wrong place, it can be very destructive. And it's the same with sex. It's, it's good and great and beautiful if it's in the right place, if it's in the fireplace, okay, in the marriage bed. That was the place God designed. And he designed it as an opportunity, as, so many, as everything else, for us to reflect who he is and his covenant commitment. When God gives himself, he doesn't just give a part of himself. You see, the problem with, with casual sex and sex outside of marriage is, it is, I want, I want physical intimacy, but I don't want intimacy on any other level. I don't want psychological intimacy. I don't want financial intimacy. I don't want legal intimacy. I, want to com- I, just, I don't want to commit. I want to give myself physically, but I don't want to give myself in any other way. I want to hold everything else back. And God says, that's not how I am. I give all of me. And I want your giving of yourself, because that's what sex was designed for, is to covenantally give yourself to someone. I want your giving of yourselves covenantally to reflect my giving of myself to you. Um, but David understood that his sin was against God first. And, 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 and we need to realize this. And the younger brother actually did realize this, that his sin is against heaven first. Um, secondly, our, our repentance is not, always against, uh, is, is not only always towards heaven first, but it's always inadequate. If you 
if you look at this parable, you see this, this boy coming in and he's saying, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And, and to his credit, at least he understands that he's not worthy. He's come to that realization that, that he's an unworthy son. He doesn't deserve relationship with the Father. He doesn't deserve the Father's blessing. But the question is, was he ever worthy? Because he says, I'm no longer worthy. <laughs> was he ever worthy? No, he never was worthy. So even the son, in his repentance, he doesn't understand how unworthy he is and how unworthy he's always been. In other words, he doesn't understand the depth of what he needs to repent of. He doesn't understand it. And he goes on to say, he says, make me like one of your hired men. Hired men work for wages. So he still, maybe to a lesser degree than the older brother, but he still thinks he can come and make a contribution. That he has something to offer. The father so that the father can pay him wages. Can you see he still doesn't understand the depth of what he needs to repent of? I like what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, as Christians, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. As Christians, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. And the problem is we don't realize that. I mean, if you've been a Christian for a couple of years, you can now look back and you can realize that when you repented for the first time and and committed your life to the Lord and and stepped into relationship with Him, you didn't have a clue what you were doing. Right? Am I right? I know I'm right. Because I'm like that. I thought, I'm making this deep, serious commitment to the Lord. Now I look back and and I think to myself, I didn't have a clue. I didn't realize how sinful I am. And, and I realize, if, if looking back 10 years, I can see, or 20 years, I can see that I was more sinful than I realized. Looking back five years from now at where I am now, I'm still going to see that I, I'm a lot more sinful than I think I am now. I'm a much, much more in need of repentance than I think I am now. Our repentance is always inadequate, but the amazing thing is the Father still receives it. The father still receives this young man's inadequate repentance. Um, not only is it inadequate, but it's, it's always a consequence. Notice, it says that he came to his senses. When he came to his senses, he said, I'm going to repent. He first came to his senses, and then he said, I'm going to repent. He didn't first repent and then come to his senses. In other words, his coming to his senses preceded his repentance. And I, I have a suspicion in, in the background of, in the back of Jesus' mind is the story of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you can read in Daniel 4, especially verse 34, it says, And Daniel looked up to him, uh, um, King Nebuchadnezzar because what, what happened to him was the king of Babylon, the king of the greatest empire of the time. And then he went mad because he wouldn't give glory to God and his hair grew, you know, long. I think for seven years he ate grass like an ox and his, you know, fingernails grew long like the talons of, a, of an eagle. Um, and uh, it says at the end of those seven years, he looked up to heaven and his sanity returned to him. He came to his senses. And I think that might be in the background of what Jesus um, used as, as the raw material for this parable. Because obviously the parable is a fictional story, but it's based on scripture. Notice that King Nebuchadnezzar first looked up to heaven and then he came to his senses. While he was still mad, God caused him to look up to heaven and gave him 
his senses back, giving his sanity back. This is encouraging on the one hand, but it's also a bit scary that even our soundness of mind, our sanity is a gift from God. And that's what this younger brother experienced in the pigsty, in the, in the parable. He came to his senses. God caused him to come to his senses. Um, and, and just in case you think that, you know, that, that is sort of the exception to the rule, James 4 verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But that verse starts off saying, but, God, but, but he gives more grace. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But if the grace that he gives to the humble is more grace, which implies that there's already been grace given, what is the grace that precedes the grace to the humble? Because the grace to the humble is more grace. What is the grace that precedes it? It's the grace that makes us humble. You see, we cannot, that's God's grace. We cannot even take credit for our own repentance. We cannot take credit for it. It's all God's grace. But not only that, he comes to his father. Remember, he's just come out of his pigsty, unclean animal. He is not only physically filthy and stinking, he is spiritually unclean. And I sometimes wonder whether the father smelt him before he saw him, you know, coming down the road, smelling of pigsty. He comes, this unworthy boy who wished his father dead, comes down the road smelling of pigsty, un, you know, religiously unclean, you know, and the father runs to him. Runs to him. And it says, he threw his arms around him. Literally in the Greek it says he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Before this unworthy son uttered one word of repentance. It's there. Let me, let me actually read it to you. Um, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And then the, father tries, then the son tries to repent. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. The father hugs him and kisses him. The father's all over the stinking, unworthy son, ungrateful son, Loving on him and kissing him before he utters one word of repentance. You see, God's love for us precedes our repentance. It precedes our repentance. So our repentance is always a consequence. And the more you understand that your salvation isn't based on your behavior, the more radically your behavior will actually change. You see, the older brother was the one who thought that his salvation was dependent on his behavior. His behavior didn't actually change at the end of the parable. Whereas the younger brother who realized that his salvation was not dependent on his behavior, he, the irony is, his behavior actually did change radically. Can you see how we often misunderstand the gospel? We say, okay, I must get into the kingdom by grace and then I must work, you know, and pull up my socks and do better. As though your justification is by grace and your sanctification is by effort. Don't we often think that as Christians? And Jesus says to us, if we do, that we are just like the older brother. Just like the older brother. Okay. So, both brothers denied a certain aspect of grace. The older brother said, if I obey, I will be accepted. If I obey, I will be accepted. I don't need grace. 
I just need obedience. If I obey, I'll be accepted. The younger brother said, initially, because I'm accepted, I don't have to obey. If I obey, I'll be accepted. Religion. Because I'm accepted, I don't have to obey. Irreligion. And Jesus says both of those need to be saved. Saved to what? You see, the unrighteous younger brother who says, because I'm accepted, I don't have to obey, needs to be saved. And the self-righteous older brother who says, because I obey, I'm accepted, also needs to be saved. And come to the place where both of them say, because I'm accepted, I obey. You see, that's grace. My obedience is not a cause of my salvation. It's an effect of my salvation. That's grace. Um, let me put it in a different way. Um, Roman Catholics, Orthodox Roman Catholics believe that faith plus works equals salvation. In other words, like the older brother, I need to work for my salvation. Orthodox Protestants like us believe faith equals salvation plus works. It makes all the difference on which side of the equation you put the works. So um, both of them denied a certain aspect of grace and, and both of them underestimate their need for salvation. And we all do, we all do. Even now, we all do. We underestimate our need for salvation. Let me put it to you this way. The, the problem is not just that we are unloved. The problem is that we are unlovely. God mustn't only give us his love because we're unloved. He must make us lovely because we are unlovely. Let me put it to you a different way. If you have a blind man in a dark room, will it do him any good if you switch on the light for him? No. Why? Because his problem is not only a lack of light, it's a lack of sight. Can you see? Can you start to see what God has to save us from? He doesn't only save us from our lack of light by switching on the light. He saves us from our lack of sight by healing our eyes. We underestimate our sin and our need for repentance. But fortunately, we also underestimate our Father's love for us. Um, we underestimate the problem and the solution. So the true nature of our Father why did the father see the younger brother when he was still far off, when he was still a long way off? Well, the best explanation is that he was looking out for him. He probably tried to finish his work early every afternoon and then go and sit on the porch. We had a good view, you know, we could see a long way down the road. And he's watching and waiting. And thinking to himself, my poor fool of a son, you know, I realized I had to send him to go and knock his head, but I, but I hope he knocks his head quickly and comes to his senses and comes back to me. Because he's such a fool, but I love him so much. Maybe, maybe this afternoon, maybe tonight, he'll come home. He has so much potential. I really love that boy. 
And I hope tonight, maybe tonight he comes home, watching the road. And then it says, um, the father ran to his son. Now, uh, I mean, we don't understand that. You know, if I have my chinos on and I run, I can still look dignified. But remember, those guys didn't wear pants. They wore like robes, which are like dresses. You couldn't run in it. You know, you, you, ladies, you know, if you have a long tightish dress, you know, you can't run with it. You know, if you want to, you know, <laughs> you have to pull it up. You know, and, and, and that's where the saying, gird up your loins comes from. You know, if you went into battle or you had to run or something, like Elijah, you know, running in front of Ahab's chariot, you know, you had to pull up this robe and then you had to pull the backside underneath, you know, between your legs and tuck it into your belt. So it became like a, like pants. And then you could run. Now this father didn't even have time to do that. He just saw the son, was so overwhelmed by emotion that he just took his robe and pulled it up and his legs stuck out and his underwear, if he were wearing any underwear, also stuck out. And you can just see this old dignified gentleman with his robes around his waist, you know, running down the road, very undignified towards this unworthy son. He was willing to sacrifice his dignity on the altar of his love for his son. God is willing to act, sacrifice his dignity for us. That's how much the father loved him. That's how much the father loved him. Um, but not only that, he, remember this, this boy smells of pigsty. And he's, the last thing he said to his father, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff and I'm, I, I'm out of here. I don't even want to know you. That's the last thing that this boy said to his father. And the father runs out to meet him, throws his arm around the, arms around the stinking son and kisses him before he utters one word of repentance. Um, and why does the father do that? Why does the father do that? Because that, I mean, that picture of a father is very far from the typical Middle Eastern picture of a father. Fathers were supposed to be harsh, disciplinarians. I mean, when the boy asked for his inheritance, the father should have, you know, scolded him and, and maybe slapped him through the face and assaulted him and chased him out of the house rather than giving him his inheritance. Why does the father do this? Why is he so nice? Why is he so loving to this unworthy son? It says to us, when he saw him, he was filled with compassion. He was filled with compassion. Remember who's telling this parable? Jesus, right? What is the emotional, what is the word used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus' emotions? Well, his positive emotions. Compassion, right? And Jesus was moved with compassion and he healed them. And he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he taught them. In other words, what this tells us is that the father is a God who is willing to sacrifice. A father who is willing to sacrifice out of compassion for us. He sees our sinfulness. He sees our selfish disobedience and he sees our selfish obedience and he sees the slavery it brings us into and instead of feeling angry at us as he should he feels sorry for us he feels compassion he sees our bondage and he comes out to meet us where we are stinking of pigsty or where we are out in the field angry with him he comes out to meet us that is the love of a father you know, he's, he's almost acting more like a mother than a father here. Yeah. Compassionate, tender-hearted, kind, 
You know, and so, so often we didn't grow up in families like that. And you might have had a father who was not like that. It was really harsh, disciplinarian, cold. You might have had that. And you might think, this whole father thing, you know, our father in heaven and all of that. I can't relate to that because my father abused me sexually or my father beat me up. Or, or father, aren't fathers harsh and condemning? Not this father. You see, Jesus doesn't only redefine sin and repentance. He also redefines the Father. He redefines God. It shows us that God is not what we expect Him to be. He's not just this hard disciplinarian. He's compassionate. He's loving. He takes the initiative. He meets us where we're at. Even if that means we stink like pigsty. Um, I once heard a story about a, a chaplain who was working during, I think it was the Second World War. And um, after one battle, he walked out onto the battlefield amongst the, the dead and dying soldiers, you know, to try and maybe find someone that he could help, uh, give some assistance, and, you know, if they were dying, maybe pray for them. And, and this one soldier called him over, you know, lying on the ground. And he went over and he saw this guy's on the way out. You know, he's mortally wounded. He's going to die soon. And, and this, this soldier grabbed his hand, you know, all desperately, you know, and, and looked into his eyes and said, Pastor, Pastor, please tell me. Because he knew he was dying. He said, please tell me, Pastor, is God really like Jesus? Because he had this disciplinarian, harsh, condemning father who's never is impossible to please, you know, in his mind as his God image. But when he read the Gospels, he saw Jesus who was so compassionate, so loving, so kind, that he would even eat with sinners and welcome them. And he said, is God really like Jesus? Because if he is, maybe there's hope for me. And what Jesus is saying is, yes, my father is like me. In fact, I'm like my father. If you see me, you see the father. That's what the father is really like. But the, the, the father doesn't only do that for the younger brother. He also does that for the older brother. This older brother, when he hears about this, he's angry. He's angry, and, and, and religion will always cause you to be angry at other people. Because why do I have to slave for what they seem to get for free? Religion will always, you know, if you, if you have to work for your salvation, you'll always hate those who seem to get for free what you have to work for. And he's angry. And the father, just like he went out to meet the younger brother, he comes out to meet the older brother. Just like he went out to meet the unrighteous, irreligious brother, so he comes out to meet the self-righteous, religious brother. And he pleads with him. And and, and see how disrespectfully the son addresses him. He says, look you. He doesn't even address him as father. Look you. So first he's dishonored him by refusing to come to probably the greatest party the father has ever thrown. So he's publicly humiliated the father and disrespected the father. And then he addresses him, he says, look you, I've been slaving for you for years. I've never disobeyed your order. You don't even give me a young goat. Not so that I might celebrate with you, but so I might celebrate with my friends. And now you slaughter the fattened calf for, for, for the son of yours. You see this, this, can you hear the despising in his voice? And yet the father comes out and he pleads with him. And see how tenderly he addresses him. He says, my son. The the son doesn't address him as father. He says, look you. And yet the father says, my son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. But it was right that we celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours. He corrects him. 
See, religion will always cause you to separate from the Father, from your brothers and sisters. It will always cause relational distance. And um, if you try and earn your salvation, religion is man's way to God. Where, where irreligion is man's way to get away from God, religion is man, man's way of getting to God. But the gospel is God's way of getting to man. God's way of getting to man. You see, if you, you're working through religion like the Pharisees, if you work for your salvation, you think you ought to work for your salvation. If you try and earn your salvation. You see, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning, as Dallas Willard says. It's not a, in fact, grace produces effort. You see, that's the misunderstanding of grace that the younger brother had. No effort to have relationship with a father. No, no, grace actually produces that effort. But the, the misunderstanding of grace that the older brother has was that I can earn my salvation. No, grace produces effort, but it is opposed to earning. It's opposed to earning. And if you work for your salvation, if you're religious and you try and work for your salvation, if you think you're succeeding like the older brother, you'll always be angry at God because whenever something goes wrong or you think you've placed, because you think by my works, by my obedience, I've placed God in my debt. He owes me. I am fulfilling my side of the bargain. He's not fulfilling his. Why are bad things happening to me? Why do I not yet have that husband or that wife? Why do, do I go through difficult things? Why do I suffer? Why don't I get that job that, I, that I've been asking him for? Haven't I been serving him? Haven't I been obeying all his orders? And, and if you try and work for your salvation out of religion and you think you are succeeding, you will always hate God. You'll always be angry at God and angry at your younger brothers who seem to get for free what you try and earn. If you think you are failing to obey, if you work for salvation, then you always feel down and depressed. So, so religion always leads to, I, I hate thee or I hate me. I hate thee or I hate me. Religion always leads to that, but it always leads to hate. Working for your salvation will always cause you to be angry with your father and with those who seem to get for free what you have to work for. I just want the ushers to hand out the elements of the communion. We're going to have communion in a moment. But I want you to see the father's heart. I want you to see that we underestimate our sin and our need for repentance. But fortunately, we also, we, we, we actually underestimate the father's love even more. You see, our, our, our sin and our need for repentance is so much greater than we think it is, but our Father's love is even greater than that. Even greater. Can you see how much He loves you? And we come, either as older brothers or as younger brothers, we're in bondage. We're slaving for the Father, we're slaving in some other pigsty, and we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. We, we need to be forgiven. We have sinned against the Father. We've, we, we owe Him in the sense that we've wasted His property, dishonored Him publicly if we're the younger brother by, by leaving the house and, and disrespecting Him. Or we've, we've like the older brother, refused to come in and celebrate with him, publicly um, disrespected him and 
we, we address him uh, disrespectfully and we're angry at him. And the, the thing is, the father just absorbs all of that. He absorbs all of that sin. He, there's a debt. You know, if, if someone if someone sins against you, they they always they always rob you. They always steal from you. There's always a debt, and either that person's going to pay the debt who sinned against you, or you're going to absorb the debt. But there's always a debt to pay. And the debt in this case, in the younger brother's case, has to be paid by the older brother because his, the father says, all that I have is yours. And he, the, the robe that was given to the younger brother was his robe. The ring was his ring. Sandals was his sandals. The fattened calf that was slaughtered was his fattened calf. And he didn't want to make that sacrifice. So that the younger brother can come and sit and eat with the father. But this communion that we're handing out now symbolizes Jesus as the ultimate older brother who is willing to have his fattened calf slaughtered. Not only his fattened calf slaughtered, but himself slaughtered. Because this bread and this wine represents Jesus. He's willing to pay the price to make us right. I just wanted to see the contrast between the younger brother and Jesus. You see, the, the younger brother, there's a complete contrast. The younger brother goes to a far off country to waste his father's, to waste his inheritance, to waste his father's position um, in disobedience to the father. Jesus doesn't just go to a far off country. He comes from heaven to earth. Not to selfishly disobey the father, but to selflessly obey the father. And to come and save us. Can you see the contrast? Jesus is something completely different. And the Father is something completely different to what we used to. And he's saying, come. Just come home. Your, your most feeble attempts to draw near to me will find me drawing near to you. You'll take one little step and I'll take a thousand giant leaps to get to you. And I don't care if, if, if you haven't had a bath yet. I don't care if you still smell like pigsty. I'm going to throw my arms around you and I'm going to kiss you. And I'm going to treat you. Not like a slave, not even like a servant, but like my son. I'm going to treat you the way you don't deserve to be treated. And he can do that because Jesus got treated the way he didn't deserve to be treated. So we get the treatment Jesus deserved because Jesus got the treatment we deserved on the cross. Jesus redefines sin, he redefines repentance, and he redefines our Father. He shows us the true nature of our sin, the true nature of our repentance, and the true nature of our Father. And um, this communion that we're going to have in a moment symbolizes that. Does everyone have the elements of the communion? Anyone? If you don't have the elements of the communion, you just put up your hand and just wave so that the ashes can give it to you. Let's, let's stand. Remember what the beginning of that chapter says? Remember the... Remember the, the accusation that the Pharisees throw at Jesus? 
this man eats with sinners and welcomes them. If you are realizing this morning that you are such a sinner, either a younger brother sinner or an older brother sinner, I have good news for you this morning. This man eats with sinners like you and me and welcomes us. He died to eat with sinners and welcome them. He died on the cross. And that's what this represents. The price he had to pay to eat with sinners and welcome them. His own death. The most excruciating death imaginable. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.